there's almost been a sigh of relief as people have seen, oh, these officers are black. That means that all these issues with policing aren't based specifically on race, which they absolutely positively are. And let me put it this way. When you are black and you get pulled over by the police and the officer who comes to your window happens to be black, if, she, if he or she is black, you don't breathe a sigh of relief. None of us think, oh, no problem here because the officer just so happens to be black. This is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Hey there, welcome back to uh, Yolitics. Whiteley and Wheeler here with you. A little chilly in, uh, in the beginning of February here, but... Uh... You know, what's why we have cold beer for it, huh? Hey, we've been through the, the coldest of the days uh, already, so we're, we're on the downside from that. Well, we think it's the coldest of the days. February, <laughs> February always throws a surprise here in Texas, uh, so, um, you know, maybe we're just getting started with it. So, you know, fasting your seatbelts for the rest of this month. Yeah, never jinx us on that. I believe we've had cold weather uh, what, as far as, what, March, I believe, in the past. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. Uh, did you during that freeze? I guess uh, Wheeler, you could just you know put your uh, your your beer stash out in the backyard, huh? Well, you could put anything out there, and it would have stayed frozen for for days. I mean, we didn't rise above uh, where we are anyway. It didn't rise above freezing for what was it eighty something hours or something yeah. like that. So, yeah, uh, it is still nice and cold. I'm having a community beer company, Honey Citrus Blonde, today, and that's Dallas, Texas, right? Yes, I believe it is. Yeah, is it good? I don't. I haven't opened it yet. What that was having? mine. Not that was mine. Not Wheeler's. <laughs> he doesn't get credit for that. I'm building up to it. What are you having? I'm having the uh, the Nitro Gentleman's Relish. Interesting. An English style brown ale. Okay. From Magnolia, You're- Texas. From uh, brewed and canned in Magnolia. What does it say? Now it's okay to drink alone. That's what it says. <laughs> it always has been for you, though, hasn't it? Which I don't mind, my friend. It's fine. Uh, yeah, Magnolia, this, Texas. You, you see, know where Magnolia like is? Fancy there. I, you know what? You've stumped me on one. I don't think I do know where Magnolia. That's the reason Texas I picked this beer because, I was like, you know, Wheeler, he, he is the uh, the all knowing when it comes to Texas and the Spanish language. So let me pick out something that I can throw him off with. I'm really, you know, usually I'm great with Texas geography, but I'm trying to think of Magnolia, and I don't know where that is. I think it's it's got to be East Texas or Southeast. See, and as a Houston native that you are, I'm disappointed in you, and you'll probably have to turn in your uh, your Houston card at the next uh, stop. Uh, but Magnolia is on the northwest side of Houston. It's just past okay. Omaha. I said southeast Texas. You uh, said east Texas. No, I said east Texas or southeast. That's southeast <laughs> Texas. It is. All right, whatever, it's just man. a fact. Uh, so this week, here we are again. Uh, we've done, it seems like, several podcasts now uh, over the life of this podcast responding to, to different incidents of um, you know, black men dying a, at the hands of police. Um, we did it with George Floyd. We did several uh, episodes there with George Floyd. Uh, and here we are again. The, the latest name that has uh, gained so much notoriety across this country is Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man who was pulled over on January the 7th uh, of this year. 
uh, for what police said was reckless driving. This was in Memphis, Tennessee. And um, we've probably all seen the video by now. If you're listening to this, you chances are you have seen the uh, body camera video from those officers showing uh, Tyree Nichols getting an extraordinary beating uh, during that traffic stop and, and all that transpired after that. Uh, and then three days later, he died in the hospital. Uh, several of those officers have now been fired and charged in this case. Um, but the, the conversation is just beginning as to, you know, what kind of meaningful change comes from this other than, you know, a unit being disbanded or officers being fired uh, or officers being charged and tried. Yeah, but Jason, we, we've asked this question quite a few times. What kind of meaningful change comes from it? Even after George Floyd, uh, that just that sparked protest around the world, around the world. And we are still seeing this happen and play out on the streets of the United States. This one's different, though. This one did not lead to the same type of outrage, it seems like, the same type of protests and activism that we saw in some other high-profile cases. This is a high-profile case as well, and it's leading a lot of people to ask, well, why not? This was just as bad. Uh, you know, a, a young black man died at the hands of police officers. Or is the outrage not there because they were black police officers? who did this and not white police officers. And it, it has, you know, a number of people asking that question of all races. Mm -hmm. why, why isn't that same outrage there? That, and that's, that's the whole focus of this episode. Yeah, so we decided uh, to, to bring in uh, a friend here, David Henderson, who is a civil rights attorney uh, who uh, practices here in Texas, but who does cases uh, all over the country. Uh, and he sees... Uh, this sort of thing, uh, cases similar to this uh, all over uh, the United States and, and actually handles those. Uh, and we thought we would bring him in for his perspective on this because he has an interesting perspective in that he has worked in a district attorney's office. He has handled these cases, uh, cases uh, of all sorts from the prosecution side. Uh, and he is now in private practice uh, as a civil rights attorney. And so he sees uh, the other side of the coin here. Uh, he has worked closely with police departments uh, when he uh, you know, used to work in the district attorney's office. He actually went out and did trainings and so forth. Uh, and, and so he's just somebody who has, I think, such a breadth of knowledge and, and, and such a spectrum of knowledge uh, when it comes to this issue and, and these kinds of cases. Uh, and so we've got him on the line with us here now to, to bring what I think is uh, some, some good, studied, unique perspective here. Hey, y'all. This is where Texas politics gets interesting for another smart conversation on Eolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. David, this case just feels different. We didn't see the protests. We didn't see the outrage, et cetera. Why is that? You didn't see the pro first, let's cover that in two parts, why it feels different and why we didn't see the protests and the outrage. I think you have seen the outrage. The reason the protests weren't the same is because of the way they controlled release of the video. One, I think releasing it on a Friday night went a long way towards controlling how activists had the capacity to respond. But then you've also got to combine that with a realization that we never saw before, and that is officers being fired and indicted and arrested before you actually release the video. I think when you look at all those factors combined, it puts it into context because the protests are often in response to an inadequate response from law enforcement. Well, now, well, I think... 
Yeah. David, let, let, let me ask you about that because the officers were fired immediately before we ever saw the video, before we the public knew what happened. Were they fired because they were black? How, how much did race play a role in this? That's a difficult question to answer because I do believe race played a role and I'm gonna flesh out what I mean there, but I don't want to overlook the work that good activists also played in bringing about this result. So you've never seen a response quite like this. It's unreasonable to believe that race didn't play a role with regard to the officers being black. Now understand the issue of race here is multifaceted because Tyree Nichols was also targeted because he was black. There's no way these officers would have beat up a young white man the way that they did to Tyree Nichols. But what you also have to remember is that we are operating in a post-George Floyd world and the rules are different now with regard to policing and activism. And what's made things unique right now is that so many everyday people took to the streets after George Floyd's murder and demanded change. And that is part of the reason why we saw this quick response. And I don't want to undercount that. It's hard to say, is it more racism, more activism? Guess I'm always a glass is half full type of person. And I think the activism played an even stronger role than the racism did. Well, let's well, talk well, a little well, bit about that activism, if we could hear specifically uh, what role that played in this particular case. Because, you know, uh, sadly, we've been through so many of these mm -hmm. situations, uh, but activists have learned. They have evolved, you know, what they do in response to these. What, what changed with this one? When you say with this one, are you talking about with Tyree? With this Yes. I, I think what changed with Tyree Nichols was a realization. So keep in mind, what the activists have done has kept our attention focused where it needs to be. With that focused attention has come other consequences like an active DOJ who will come in and prosecute officers for violating people's civil rights. And that's more than anything else what these police departments are afraid of. So activists are the first part of a chain reaction. So what the Memphis Police Department is really responding to is this staying in the news cycle long enough to reflect that they didn't do anything, where the federal government is going to come in and investigate not just this incident, but this police department, and then eventually have what we call a consent decree, where they demand them to change their practices, which is an even bigger problem than what happened to Tyree Nichols for the Memphis Police Department. Would the Memphis Police Department have fired those five police officers if they were white? Probably not. And I say that based on the fact that, Jason, my opinions as a trial lawyer are normally going to be rooted in evidence whenever they can be. And the evidence suggests that the answer is no. I don't remember the last time that we saw officers being fired or indicted this quickly. In all likelihood, it would have been the same as, you know what, we have a direct comparator with one of our next door neighbors, and that's Ronald Green, who was beaten to death by five officers during a traffic stop back in 2019. None of those officers were fired. And it was years before any of them faced charges. So based on that, I'll say no. That was, David, I that was in Louisiana, though, right? That case? That was in Louisiana. But keep in mind, police departments train together. Like, we always talk, conservatives always say, you know what, we should leave this to the states and to localities. Jason, I was a trainer for prosecutors and police departments when I was still working at the DA's office. And the police departments, I'd get invited to train around the state. And toward the end of the time I was doing the training, I didn't do it that long. I was invited to travel nationally and do police training. So they follow the same playbook for the most part, regardless of where they are. And when you were, uh, uh, let, let's uh, stay with that. When you were doing that training, did you get the, the sense that, that anything stuck? Because over and over again, we keep hearing about, oh, we got to change the training. This shows that we got to change the training. And I think that universally we heard that, especially after this latest incident with Tyree Nichols. Does it stick when you go in to, to try to change that training? I think it sticks, but 
it can't stick any more impactfully than the training itself, right? So when we're doing the training, I'm doing it largely with regard to the law as it related to the crimes that I was working on. Police officers typically didn't have a good understanding of the law and didn't have a strong interest in having an understanding of the law. Typically, they wanted to do whatever they thought they should be able to do. And it was really hard to break them apart from that because that's what they're taught to be okay. And let's put this in perspective. Recently, I deposed a local police chief and I asked him, hey, what are the guidelines when your officers show up at a scene with regard to who they can detain, who they can arrest, and how they're supposed to go about doing either or both? His response was, it's whatever my guys think they need to do. And my question was, well, but your guys, and keep in mind, there are women on the force, but guys was his term. I said, they're governed, their actions are governed by written policies, right? And that includes the law and the constitution. He said, sure, but ultimately it's whatever they think they need to do. And that's how police officers see it. As long as they're being trained that way, and as long as there's a huge gap, which there is, between the reality of what their job entails and what they perceive their job as entailing, we're not going to see much of a difference in how they go about policing. In this case here, Tyree Nichols, the Memphis Police Department is coming out looking pretty good. They took immediate action before releasing the, the video. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I saw this on the news a number of times, didn't really know who Tyree Nichols was, but his family, with those activists you were talking about, pressuring the police department in the city of Memphis to physically do something. So they sat on this for a while, and, and it seems to me, I'm not inside the city there, uh, but it seems to me they did bow, in a sense, to public pressure. I think we're giving them entirely too much credit, Jason, and I've just got to be direct mm -hmm. in saying that. And I do not mean to make light of a situation this serious, but let me give you an analogy. It would be like if my mom told me, hey, no cookies before dinner. I go in, I try to grab a cookie, and I break the cookie jar. Then I clean the jar up, and when she shows up, I'm like, well, hang on, mom. I just want you to know I cleaned up all the evidence of my wrongdoing. The Memphis Police Department recruited these officers. They trained these officers. They created the Scorpion Unit. They put these officers in the Scorpion Unit. They supervised or failed to supervise them while they were in the Scorpion Unit. And the way they did all those things directly led to Tyree Nichols' death. And so for them to come back and say, well, hang on a second, we disbanded the unit, and we've also fired these police officers is only cleaning up a mess that they created, and they still need to be held accountable for those circumstances because nothing that they have done has completely resolved them. Mm -hmm. So so there's a lot of threads that are still going to have to be untangled here. It's not just solved by disbanding a unit and firing some officers. Um, I want to ask you, David, about the police report here, uh, because the, you know you spoke about activists. I, I think it was an activist who first was able to get a, a picture of that police report up, uh, and then news organizations have followed. The New York Times put out something that said that hours after the incident, the police report that was filed uh, made no mention of kicks and punches to Tyree Nichols. Uh, it, he was described in it as an irate suspect who had started to fight the officer officers. Uh, and one of the things that really stood out to me was their quote where they said officers were, were yanking Mr. Nichols from a car, threatening to hurt him, and then after he ran away, catching up with him and inflicting the deadly beating. All the while, it appears from the videos, Mr. Nichols never struck back, end quote. Uh, and, you know, in this, they were talking about the officers being the victims, that he had come after them, that he had, in fact, even touched one of their guns, but that the video doesn't bear that out. You've been around for a long time. You, you know, been in the prosecutor's office. You're in private practice now as a civil rights attorney. 
Does any of this sound familiar? Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that question. Does it sound familiar? Because you're raising a number of different issues that we can explore with regard to policing. Let's focus on the idea of whether or not this is familiar. First of all, what happened to Tyree Nichols itself is familiar. We're treating this case as though it's an outlier, and it's not. But let's focus on the way they documented what happened. And it may be worth starting here with the camera evidence, because we all think that body cameras have been transformative. And in some ways, they have. But keep in mind, body cameras are a tool that were designed for the police to collect evidence on us, not the other way around. When I was still at the DA's office, I had conversations with the police chiefs who said, I'm getting all my guys' body cameras so they can collect information about what they see on the street. For example, sometimes if you have a car crash that was caused due to intoxication, when the officers first get there and they're recording people walking around, still woozy, saying things without realizing that they're making confessions, officers wanted to be able to capture all that information. It just so happens now they don't like the fact that it captures everything that they do as well. But a standard playbook, and this has been documented by journalists and even in docudramas, my favorite current one is We Own This City, which is aired on HBO. Part of aggressive policing and part of police brutality involves officers being trained on how to doctor their reports to avoid accountability. And so what they will typically do, and this is the standard playbook, is anytime they have beaten someone, especially if that person ends up being seriously injured or they're killed, is they will always accuse them of some wrongdoing that warranted a heightened response. Here, that was reckless driving, even though there's no evidence of reckless driving. Then they will also claim that they had to do something to defend themselves against a violent attack towards them, not the other way around. So when they say grabbing for my gun, they're not just saying he was grabbing at the gun. What they're actually saying is he was threatening them with lethal force, which then justifies them using lethal force in response to defend themselves. Then typically, if Tyree had survived, they would have arrested him. They would have charged him with assaulting them based on the claims that they've made in some of those reports. Then most people can't afford to post bail. They'll go to their court setting when they've been sitting in jail for a couple of weeks, which means you've lost your job. Average person can't pay their rent. Maybe you're now behind on your car payment. You're desperate to get out. So the prosecutor will say, you know what? I'll reduce this assault against the public servant to a standard assault. You can enter a plea, often to deferred adjudication. Most people will jump at that. And then later on, when you come back and you try to complain, the police department's going to say, well, hang on, you accepted a plea agreement for assaulting our guys. What do you mean our guys actually assaulted you? And what officers know is that body camera footage typically is not maintained for any appreciable amount of time. The camera footage will have been deleted, and there's no record to contradict, but you're going to have at least five officers, it looks like now seven plus three EMTs saying against one person who was arrested and accused of wrongdoing. So, so how do these cases come to light then? If, if, if in the you know time after George Floyd, cops are still doctoring these reports, which is illegal itself, right. and they contradict the, the camera footage, th this is happening more than just Tyree Nichols and Ronald Green and George Floyd. Obviously, we know that. But, but how are these cases coming to light? Is it activists? Is it, is it attorneys? What is it? Jason, the only clear connection I see to when these cases come to light is typically viral video footage, but there's no clear indication of when footage is going to go viral. On the one hand, Tyree Nichols' case has gone viral. Ronald Green's footage is just as violent. It did not go viral. Here in the DFW Metroplex, we represent a man named Robert Miller. He was arrested for being Black and homeless, and he was beaten to death behind bars shortly after his arrest. All those cases are essentially the same. Why one goes viral and another one doesn't, 
I don't have a clear cut answer for that, except that I do believe, and there is a racist component to this. Let me be clear. There is a racist component to this. I think part of the reason that Tyree Nichols case has gone violent is because the five officers who directly contributed to beating him to death. And I say that because there were more officers who are a part of this, but the five who directly contributed to beating him to death are black. And I think that's part of what's made people gravitate towards examining this case. So is that going to change the conversation here? Does that change the potential for real change to come out of this, that we don't have that, that typical scenario, I think, that familiar dynamic that the country has gotten used to that roils this country over and over again, where you have white officers with a black suspect. This time, it's black officers, largely, that we see in the video there. Does it change things? It should, but it won't, because America is so bad at discussing race. That's the simple truth. And I feel like to a degree, there's almost been a sigh of relief as people have seen, oh, these officers are black. That means that all these issues with policing aren't based specifically on race, which they absolutely positively are. And let me put it this way. When you are black and you get pulled over by the police and the officer who comes to your window happens to be black, if, she, if he or she is black, you don't breathe a sigh of relief. None of us think, oh, no problem here because the officer just so happens to be black. And you're talking about a system where racism plays a structural role long-term. And this isn't just me saying this, by the way. A few years ago, I did a high school panel talking about policing in San Antonio. And the person who's in charge of training for the Texas Rangers happened to be there. And he was enamored by his recent discovery of this concept, implicit bias. He had no idea that he was subject to implicit bias and other officers are subject to implicit bias. That's obvious. What was interesting was one of the students then asked him a question about structural racism. And he says, I don't think that structural racism or systemic racism exists in the United States. And it's like, you just admitted implicit bias. So hang on mm -hmm. a second. Let's say that you and a collection of other Rangers are hiring new applicants to the Texas Rangers department. And all of you are subject to the implicit bias that you just described. And let's say that you maintain that same committee for hiring for six months. There's not structural racism in hiring for the Rangers, given that everybody who's doing it at that time is subject to implicit bias against people of color. And the answer is no, they just won't make those connections. So because we're so bad at discussing it, this should be an opportunity to recognize fundamental aspects of policing that need to change. I'm just reluctant to say that I think we're actually going to get there. One of those fundamental aspects came up after the George Floyd incident, and that is uh, hopefully a good cop would stop a bad cop from doing something. In the George Floyd case, I believe there were four Minneapolis police officers. Uh, in this case, there were, there were more than five, but at least five directly involved. I hate to use George Floyd as the marker here, but that, that was a pivotal moment um, in, in American history. Why haven't we seen more police officers step in and, and stop their colleagues? They don't have to, you know, to be the guy that gets made fun of later on in the locker room, just pull them away, take a breath, something like that. I, it's, it's just surprising to me that, that we haven't seen that uh, after what happened in Minneapolis. So I think part of the reason we haven't seen it, Jason, is because we haven't acknowledged what policing in America entails. And let's take a look at what's happened here in Memphis. You've got this specialized unit. I've read different reports of there being anywhere from a low end of 30 people in the specialized unit, the Scorpion unit, to upwards of 40 people in the Scorpion unit. But regardless of which one of those numbers it is, the Memphis Police Department has tried to make the bad apples argument. These are just a few bad apples. 
they don't represent the totality of our police department. Well, there are at least six of them involved in this incident. And if there are 30 to 40 people in the unit, that's somewhere between 15 and 20% of the officers in this unit. So at what point are you going to say that they do in fact reflect the quality and the and the ethos of your department? Does it have to be 25%, 30%, 35%? I think that number 15 to 20% is big enough for us to say, this is what the department is actually like. And when you see the scene one and scene two in this situation, one of the officers who's on administrative leave, but who hasn't actually been fired was at scene one. He participated in yanking Tyree out of the car. He tased him. And as the other officers ran off after him, he said, "He, I hope they stomp his ass. And so it, not only are they not pulling the other officers back, they're egging them on. So this is the culture of policing. And until we accept that reality, we won't be able to let go of notions, for example, like good officers stopping bad officers from wrongdoing. Yeah, and that is the opposite of de-escalation too, mm -hmm. which, you know, there's been so much training uh, focused on de-escalation and you just don't see it uh, again uh, in this case here. I wanna ask you, you know, just being of, of, of such a legal mind, mm -hmm. um, what do you think about departments across the country, you know, looking at what's going on there in Memphis, looking at that video and knowing that they have their own specialized units uh, in, you know, quote unquote, high crime areas that are given, you know, latitude and, and sort of freehand ability to go out and, and, and make things happen in certain communities. Are, are, are places across the country, localities across the country, second, second guessing that now, do you think? Or should they be? They should be second guessing that. I don't think they are because there's just a huge disconnect between what policing involves and what officers perceive it as involving. The New York Times has done some great reporting in recent years about, for example, what happens during traffic stops. Police officers train for the theory they can be killed at any time during a traffic stop even though the data simply doesn't support that conclusion. But the fact that the data doesn't support that conclusion hasn't changed them from training the way that they do. That's why people sometimes ask, how does all this violence descend from a basic traffic stop? It does because of the way that officers perceive it. So when you've got a perception gap that is that wide, it doesn't just apply to traffic stops. It, it applies to other factors. In fact, let's use an example right here from Dallas, Texas. And I forget the name of the case, but I think of it as the Dallas strip club case, the Dallas adult entertainment case, maybe I can call it that. The whole issue of whether or not these businesses should be allowed to stay open past two o'clock a.m. The police department basically said, we have to do it because we're trying to fight violent crime and violent crime is connected to these institutions, these establishments. That's why they need to close earlier. And in the court case, the judge reviewed their data and said, your data does not support that conclusion. There's no connection here between violent crime and these businesses staying open later. But every time we do that type of examination, that's what bears out. And you combine that with the fact that police departments intentionally refuse to keep statistics so that they can monitor their activity or assess them. Can give you examples of this from my direct experience working at the prosecutor's office. But as long as there's that information gap there, I think what they're going to say to themselves is, you know what, we're out here combating violent crime and we're being effective. So we're just going to keep plugging away. And there's no liability in the courtroom to prevent them from doing that. David, at the end of the day, um, no matter how much Memphis contributed to this, the, the city and Shelby County there did take action. They fired these guys, these these police officers. Uh, before protests ever happened, before anyone had to had to ask for calm in the community and no rush to judgment. Does this 
case with Tyree Nichols and how Memphis handled it, does this create a blueprint for other cities going forward um, to, to handle things quicker than letting them all play out in the court system and, and having protests and, and uh, you know, things like that? It should. It should, and I hope it does. And here's the reality I have to express, though. It's great that you have this blueprint, but it's a blueprint without any specific plan or funding to actually build the house. And I think that brings me back to something we discussed earlier, and that is Memphis PD isn't doing this solely out of the goodness of its heart. It's also doing this to avoid future liability for the feds coming in and conducting an investigation. Members of the public, we allow the police departments to do this every single time. Let's go back to George Floyd's trial, excuse me, George Floyd's case and Derek Chauvin's trial, which you mentioned earlier. We had all these discussions about how the blue wall is coming down. We expected to see this heightened level of police reform. None of that actually happened. And the reason we know it didn't happen is because the Minneapolis Police Department was being investigated by state authorities and it was being investigated by federal authorities. The state authorities have already produced their report. And in that report, it outlines significant systemic problems with policing in Minneapolis, including racism. They've been documented how the Minneapolis Police Department surveils politicians and activists who are combating bad policing. So the Memphis Police Department is trying to prevent that type of activity from shining a light on everything that's going on in their department. Keep in mind, they disbanded the Scorpion unit because they said this unit is a problem, right? What, what does disbanding the unit solve? What you took is you treat it like a deck of cards, the deck that represents the Scorpion unit, you shuffled it back into the deck of the general police department. And so you took what you acknowledged as a problem and you just spread it all throughout your department with these aggressive officers who believe in these tactics that ultimately led to a young man's death. So we just have to be careful if we really want to see meaningful change in, pol in policing from giving the department too much credit at the expense of structural change. Okay, so that being said, with, with officers being shuffled back in, as, as you just uh, illustrated there, uh, and as someone who handles a lot of these cases, um, this is a little bit dated, but Pew Research uh, several years ago found that Texas had the largest black population in the country. Uh, so a lot of our listeners right now who are listening to this uh, here in Texas may be black. What do you tell a black person uh, who has seen yet another video here, a bunch of videos in this case, what do you tell them if you're on your way home at one in the morning and you don't think you're doing anything wrong and suddenly you see those lights turn on? What do you tell them? The advice for us is the advice that we've always taken. And that is, if at all possible, stop in a well-lit area where people can see what's going on. Be prepared with your cell phone. Recording these officers is a good bet. But here's the thing. None of those things are going to keep you out of trouble. If you look at what happened with Tyree Nichols, there is nothing that young man could have done to have prevented what happened to him. I actually think when he tried to run away, that was an intelligent thing for him to do, even though it did not save him. As Black people, this is what we actually have to do. And Dr. King, I work with one of the last living links to Dr. King, as the two of you know, Reverend Peter Johnson. And one of the fundamental components of pressing for change is maintaining a belief that change can come. That's the best thing we can do is simply not give up and stop believing that it is possible to fight for these changes. The best hope we have right now is that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act will be passed. I think we're still a very long way from that passing away, but from that passing, but I guess in summary, again, we, we do have to main hope, maintain hope, even though it's really hard to see it, because in terms of what you can do to avoid this violence, 
there is no clear-cut path. I don't even think Tyree Nichols committed a traffic violation. I, I don't believe he did. He just happened to be in the wrong place, the wrong time. What we can also do, though, is reach out to our policymakers and our leaders and demand that they do something about these, these units because Dallas Police Department believes in policing by hotspots. So the theory that led to Tyree Nichols' death is largely a theory that we follow in this Metroplex. <clears throat> David, my last question is one I probably should have asked you in the very beginning, and that is based on your experience, and yours is very unusual because you handle a lot of these cases as a civil rights attorney uh, across the country. But when you saw this video, when you heard this case about Tyree Nichols, what was your reaction to it? My reaction was that we're seeing yet another video under circumstances where we're failing to realize things we need to keep in mind to lead to meaningful change. The comparisons were immediately made to the Rodney King video, and I was in high school when that happened. I will never forget it. And there are a lot of direct parallels to what happened to Rodney King. But the challenge that presents for me is it suggests that we haven't seen these types of occurrences in the last 30 years since Rodney King. And they go back even further than that. When LBJ commissioned the Kerner Commission to study what led to the long, hot summer back in 1967, the Kerner Commission, when it produced its report, said it has a lot to do with police brutality. So we've known this problem is present for over 50 years. And within the last three to four years, we've seen repeats of people being beaten to death by the police, either during traffic stops or behind bars. And so I feel like when we look at this video, we isolate this and treat it as an outlier to such a degree that it just prevents us from wrestling with the fundamental problem of structural issues in policing in our country. And until we can contend with that, we can't lead to change. And for everybody who's wondering what difference this makes, for everybody who thinks of this as a race issue, which it largely is, as a policing issue, since it largely is, you should be able to rate to relate to Tyree Nichols' parents. You should be able to think through what it means for a parent to know that their baby was three blocks away from them being beaten to death when they had not done anything wrong. And every American should want to build a country where that never happens again. And in fact, three blocks away, he was calling for his mom That's right. in the middle of it. That's right. Hmm. David, thank you so much uh, for taking the time uh, with us here. We, we hate that uh, <clears throat> the events necessitated us uh, talking with you about this, but uh, it's great insight. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with y'all. Click subscribe and get Yolitics every week. Eolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. You know, Jason, what, what strikes me on this case is that there wasn't a need for protests. There wasn't a need for, for uh, activism across the country, for people to, to line up, march peacefully in cities everywhere for the police department to take action. We have not seen that in other cases. Mm -hmm. The Memphis Police Department fired these five officers before the video was ever released, before the public knew just how bad this case was. After they fired them, after they, they said we're going to charge them uh, with, you know, with a crime, only then did they start saying, oh, well, this case, the video you're going to see when we, we release it on a Friday night, it is as bad as the Rodney King beating out in Los Angeles back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. You know, what interests me about that whole dynamic that you're talking about there, though, is so this is different this time. Uh, over and over again, we keep seeing these large-scale protests, these mass protests across the country after these incidents occur. And then as the protests sort of die down, there is a lot of talk about reforms and changes. 
and then it fizzles out and it all fades away until we get to the next one. And then another big protest erupts and so forth. So this time, if the protest doesn't materialize and we're not seeing these widespread demonstrations across the country, um, does the other end of this change? You know, does this fade away like all of the others? Or is there action that comes in the absence of protests this time? It, it'll be interesting to see, does all of it get turned on its head this time? Or is it just the fact that we don't have the protests? You know, does this lead to change? A lot of people are talking about change, wanting change. The question is, does it happen, especially in the absence of large-scale demonstrations? And we all know, unfortunately, this is going to happen again. So will the next city in which this happens get pressured to say, look at what happened in Memphis. Look what Memphis did. Memphis, they mm -hmm. fired these police officers. They charged them before ever telling the public what happened because they did the right thing on the inside. And I, I, I fully agree with what David said about let's don't give them too much credit because they're the ones who who train these officers, allow these officers to, to be on the streets, uh, et cetera. But... At the end of the day, they did take swift action. That police department did. Will the next police department take swift action? Will the next prosecutor's office take swift action? Or are we going to, you know, descend into protests and, and things like that when this happens again? I certainly hope not. I, I, I hope that, that people can look at Memphis and say, let's do it like they did. Let's handle this. Let's do what's right. Yeah, this is thought-provoking uh, on a lot of levels. We hope that you uh, got something out of this discussion today uh, and that you are subscribed to us here on Yalitix. If you're not, hit that subscribe button down there uh, because we have these coming out every week, and sometimes we throw in some extras when the news warrants that. Uh, and tell your friends about us as well. And uh, thanks, as always, for listening to us today. See you next week. And sorry, Magnolia. I, I, I'll study up. I, you know, I, I should have known that one. Do better, Wheeler. Do better. <laughs> okay, y'all. The conversation doesn't stop here. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Yolitics.